There it is. There it there is. There we go. There we go. Uh, so you have not done this before. So what you need to know is that we're going to spend the first like 90 seconds here letting people roll in uh, to the show because some people queue up, but some people show up at 8, 801. Um, everybody who is showing up now, hello. Uh, nobody's in the chat. Where is everybody? There, there you go. Um, uh, and this is one of those cases where you and I are kind of email buddies, but we've never actually spoken like real human beings before. Nice to see you. How are you? That's how you feel interacting with most people. I'm, I'm good, but <laughs> I got to tell secrets. you, I got to tell you, I'm a little intimidated, you know, because I'm I'm a big fan of you as a writer. And I, I look, I grew up in New York, and so I was generally unfazed by celebrity. They just walked down the streets all the time. The one time before today that I was phased was I once got on a subway train and Doris Kearns Goodwin was on the car. And I was like, oh, I was very fanboying. And I could not go up and be like, I'm such a fan of your writing. And this is kind of like that. I'm such a fan of your writing. So That's I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. And Amanda, who's the real draw, everybody was so excited when I mentioned in the newsletter that you were coming back. The comments were like, Amanda, Amanda, Amanda. Well, that's great. So, hey, guys. People people love you. Always part of the fam. All right. Let's get started. We're giving people two, mom, two minutes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thursday Night Bulwark. I'm JVL here with my very old friend, Amanda Carpenter, so old. Uh, old, but we have been friends for a long time. And uh, my very new friend, Ian, of course, I've never said this out loud, Basson or Basson? There you go, the first one. Like, like first the one, fish Bass. and then going in the door. Basson. There we go. Uh, so Amanda and I are going to talk a little bit of politics in the back half of the show, but we only have Ian for the first uh, first bit. So I want to talk about all the stuff they're doing to protect democracy. I've wanted to do like a full-on protect democracy edition of the show for basically since Amanda left. Um, and so this is my chance to do it. And so for Ian, for the people who don't know, you come out of the Obama White House. Is I that do. right? So White House Counsel's Office uh, for Obama, which must have been crazy because you guys had cabinet level secretaries resigning like every six weeks and people coming in and out all the time. We, they kept sending us the love letters from Kim Jong-un you know, to the council's office and right. saying, what do we make of this? And it was bad. What was it like in that All the chaos. epic scandals? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, the, the was that the most boring White House council's office of like this century? <laughs> Certainly, because no, I'm serious. I'm kicking back, and I'm like, yeah. so before Obama, I mean, we had W. Well, the White House Counsel was like, well, is this torture? Is this not torture? Do we have to release these records? Before him, you had uh, Clinton. There was impeachments, right? Like it, it's been a we, an exciting I mean, life in the White House Counsel's office until you showed up, and then it's like we you know, prided ourselves. Yeah, tell I mean, us where you waited on the tan suit. It'd be boring. <laughs> I love the tan suit. I thought the tan <laughs> suit was great. And look, there were some really um, existentially republic-shattering challenges that we had to deal with in the White House Counsel's Office during the Obama administration. I mean, I just remember there was one time when um, Bo the dog was going to be featured on a baseball card. And uh, they came to us uh, and they asked if this was, you know, were there any legal issues if Bo the dog was featured on a, on a, on a baseball card? And I remember I, I sort of quickly was like, I can't imagine that's a problem. And the next day, Politico had some story about Bo the dog's baseball card. And I had heart palpitations. Like, oh, my God, did I just sign off on something that's got some problem? These were the stakes. 
right? These were the stakes. It was serious stuff. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, who owned Bo's uh, LIN rights, right? This, yeah, was it a gifted kind? This was the issue, or my other favorite one Bo was, was a rescue um, dog, too. Doesn't the rescue shelter have some claim to that? And any revenues uh, therein derived? Another one of my favorites was there was going to be some uh, U.S. NASA-sponsored space flight, and um, an entity wanted to put a coin on the craft, uh, you know, in case the craft got out there. And I don't know, alien forms find it. You know, a lot of people, if you've ever been around people in Washington, love giving out their coins. You meet anyone in the military, they give you a coin. They're really into coins. So, so someone wanted to make sure that the aliens got their coin in case this satellite met any aliens. And that came to my office too. I remember thinking, God, where am I going to find, you know, the common law on whether you can give aliens <laughs> coins? So You went to Yale Law School so that you could sit just, around doing alien coin law. I mean, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, back then it was pretty awesome. But here was here was the thing. Here was here was why I think it was it was you know wonderfully boring. Except if you love coins and baseball cards, I happen to like both. But here's here's why is because we trusted that everyone in the building, from the president on down, one they were going to come to the lawyers and say, hey, we just want to make sure that if this thing that we're trying to do to advance the people's agenda that we got voted in to do, we can do it and that we're doing it in a way that is compliant with the rules that are expected of us in these high-level positions they were in. And when they would come to our office and genuinely ask us to help them on that, um, I had three binders in my office and I inherited them from the White House counsels and administrations before ours. And they had memos going back to the Eisenhower era that White House counsels and White House chiefs of staff had sent out explaining what people could do and what they couldn't do in the performance of their duties. When someone came in and said, hey, can we do this? You know, I'd go look at the binders. And if the binders didn't have an answer, I called Emmett Flood because Emmett Flood did that job for George W. Bush. And if Emmett and I couldn't answer it, we called Beth Nolan because Beth did that job for Bill Clinton. And the three of us would try to figure it out. And there was a general expectation that whatever we came up with as the lawyers, and we said, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, our clients, the people in the building up to the president would say, okay. And you know, every president has always tried to push the bounds of their power. That's inherent in the job. But at the end of every administration, you know, there's a ledger. And sometimes the president said, you know, I'm gonna to try to push here. And sometimes the president said, no, my lawyers said I can't do that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold back here. And it was always sort of a, a balance, a tension. And that was the way it has always been until now, because now you have a situation where, uh, at least in the prior administration, Trump administration, there was not confidence that if the lawyer said you can't do this, that the president would say, okay, can't do that, right? Because the president fundamentally didn't believe in those restraints. And that is fundamentally what motivated us to form protect democracy, because it's a really thin reed that separates us as a liberal democracy from more illiberal authoritarian forms of government. And that thin reed rests on people who are given the awesome powers of government uh, following the rules. And when they're told that there are limits, honoring them. And what's fundamentally different about the MAGA Trump movement we're seeing right now is unlike, and look, Amanda and I, and probably Jonathan, you and I disagree on a whole lot of policy and politics, but we fundamentally agree on those constraints. And there is a movement in this country that doesn't, and we formed the organization because that is an existential threat to the Republic. All right, last backward-looking question about the Obama administration. Did you at any time, and maybe you can't answer this because of confidentiality, but at any time in your time there, did you have to tell one of the other people working in the White House, here's, and I quote, here's the best free legal advice you're ever going to get. <laughs> Hire yourself a great fucking defense attorney because you're going to need it. Did you ever 
Did you ever say that I, to anybody? No. I, I didn't don't think those words came out of my mouth. Um, if anything, oh. you know, they were they were so quick to be, I don't want to be anywhere near anything like that. Please keep me away from it. And if we said, this is the way you could stay 10 miles away from ever needing that sentence, they did it. Okay, I, I okay. want Ian to tell the story about the White House contacts memo that led to the founding of Protect Democracy and how that applies to what Trump is threatening to do in a second term because I think that the founding story and yeah, how it plays out to so what we're really worried about right now is because you started to sit up and when when in 2016 did you stand up for protect democracy? So I got an email from Justin Florence, uh, one of our co-founders, um, 5 a.m. the night of the election after the election. I've gone back and I've looked and I found that email and because he got up early or said, he was still up. <laughs> I think we were all pretty alarmed at that point in, uh, in the evening. Uh, I, I was probably, you know, halfway into a bottle of bourbon, so I probably didn't respond right to that email. But, um, and the email basically said, should we get the White House Counsel's Office alumni together and start talking about what we're about to be facing as a nation? And I think one of the core things that motivated that, obviously the broad strokes of some of the stuff I just talked about, but very specifically, you know, Amanda refers to a memo. I mentioned those binders, right? The binders going back to Eisenhower. So one of the memos that was in those binders that had been issued by every White House counsel's office since Watergate and the origins of the memo, the theories behind the memo go back even further than that, limited when people in the White House could contact the Department of Justice because our law enforcement, the most powerful force that the, the federal government has at, as it, at, at its disposal short of the military, the power to put people in prison, to take away people's liberty. The understanding is that power is handled at arm's length from every any political consideration and is an independent application of a lot of facts that independent prosecutors and investigators in the Justice Department, the FBI do without any interference from the White House as to who might get investigated, who might get prosecuted. We took great pains, us and every administration before us, to make sure that not only did we not actually interfere with that, but there was not even an appearance of inter of interference with that because people have to have faith that that's being carried out independently of the White House. And so in our administration, you know, very early on, we issued a 14-page memo very carefully laying out when you could and could not contact the Department of Justice and how to do that to avoid interfering with the independent application of law enforcement in this country. And the, the fear that animated uh, my co-founders and I, some, some other White House counsel and I, and DOJ, high-level DOJ officials who started talking in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election was, what would happen if an administration didn't honor those lines? What would happen if an administration felt that they could simply tell the Justice Department um, to act as a sword to go after their opponents and a shield to protect their friends. And we didn't really have to imagine for long because that regime exists in this world. It exists in Russia, it's what Vladimir Putin does in jailing his opponents. It exists in Venezuela, where if you're a potential uh, challenger to the, the governing regime, you get put in prison. Belarus, same thing. This is the way autocrats govern, is they use law enforcement as a weapon to protect themselves in power and to go after any citizen who dares to speak out against them. And the, the thing that protects us from that were a lot of policies that the White House and the Department of Justice honor that are not really legally binding. Uh, they are rooted in constitutional principles, and they expect people of good faith who are given that enormous power to honor them. 
And what motivated us really to, to start yeah. this was, you know, what if that goes out the window? What if you have a movement that's animated against it? And so that was really, that that animated the first things we ever did at Protect Democracy. And it's been a through line of our work and we could talk about where it's led to today and some of the stuff that, that Amanda's working on. But that, that should kill all Americans, the notion that law enforcement could be used as a weapon uh, as opposed to an independent application of the rule of law and even-handed justice. Give me the give me the thirty-second version of how you go from the five a.m. email to where you are today. So, like, how, how did you actually like found the organization? Who did you? I mean, you guys have what a hundred people now? Two hundred people? Yeah, we're, we're pushing, big, pushing big almost, almost one twenty. Yeah, we're, we're about a hundred. Yeah, one hundred twenty some odd people. We're probably now in about twenty-six or so states. Um, all across the country. I mean, we got people in, uh, you know, we West got people in, in Vermont. We got people in West Virginia. We got people in Tennessee. We got people in California. We got people in Kentucky, uh, Utah, um, Texas. Um, so after after Justin sends the email, um, he and I immediately start, uh, you know, the days following, really mapping out the concerns that you know we were worried about. And, you know, look, I come out of the Obama the White House. Justin came out of the Obama White House. No secret. We were Democrats. We leaned left in our policy views. And they were a whole thing, set of things we worried about that, you know, a, a conservative Republican administration was going to do on reproductive freedom, on uh, on energy and climate change, on the social welfare state that we personally disagreed with. Um, but there are plenty of groups that were going to fight those battles. Those are the traditional battles that Democrats and Republicans have fought over for decades. And we didn't think there was something special or unique that was needed there. Second set of concerns were about, you know, frankly, an unstable person uh, having the suitcase, the football, and being in charge of kind of the geopolitical order and the risk that we could have a conflagration, a violent conflagration in the world. Um, but we're lawyers. <laughs> and we didn't think that we had many comparative advantages to help. If, if the situation room was going off the rails, we were not the people <laughs> who were going to get it back on there. If anything, you know, sort of the thrust of never Trump conservatism and Republicans were the national security and foreign policy establishment. And if anyone was going to talk sense into the situation room, it was them. But then there was this last category of things, like that that memo protecting DOJ, the Department of Justice from White House interference. There was the notion, you might remember this during the transition, Trump was talking about bringing his own private security team in to supplant the Secret Service. So he would have a private sector security team that reported just to him. Call them no something like the Republican Guard. You could, you could, you just might say that, right? You could, you know, I don't, you might get a trademark. Just pick a name. Or Ron, I don't know. Um, but, you know, there were a set of things that had come up during the campaign that were completely anathema to our constitutional republic. Democrat or Republican didn't matter. These were completely outside of the spectrum of American politics. They borrowed from the playbook that you saw an autocrat, autocrats deploying around the world in the 21st century, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, or Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, or Recep Erdogan in Turkey. Um, and those were the things we were most concerned about. And we didn't see a group out there that was focused on addressing that threat. And importantly, bringing people together ac across political differences. Because if you look around the world at what has stopped autocratic movements, and we just saw this in Poland, right? It's when people who disagree about politics and policy put those differences aside and say, hey, the foundations of the system itself are at risk. And this system, a democracy, is the way we peacefully resolve our disagreements. And if we don't have that, then every disagreement we have about what the top marginal tax rate should be descends into violence because we don't have a way to resolve those disagreements. And we thought it was essential that there be an organization recognizing that 
American democracy was at risk of going down the road of these other countries that have lost their democracies and become more autocratic in recent years. And we thought it was important to be an organization formed holistically and exclusively from inception for the purpose of preventing us from going down and becoming a more autocratic country. And that bring together people who disagree, like me and Amanda, um, to stand together in defense of our system. And so we, we, we wrote up this like flowery concept note, you know, how we would describe that. And then it's out on the shelf, right? Because it takes a lot of chutzpah to start a new organization. I didn't have it and Justin didn't have it. And, and then a couple of weeks after that, I got a phone call from some of my other former colleagues from the White House Counsel's Office, Karen Dunn and Blake Roberts, who had served with us and said there'd been a meeting of a bunch of lawyers in Washington, some of the top folks who had uh, been at the top of the Justice Department, other folks in the White House saying they thought a new organization was needed and um, and my name was floated as someone who might lead it. And that was a very humbling and flattering phone call, but it was also a kick in the pants. It said some people actually believe you can do this and are counting on you to do this. And so Justin and I started meeting with another alum of the White House Counsel's Office named Emily Loeb. Uh, and, a, and a group of other folks who come out of DOJ in the White House. And that's when we got together in earnest and started started setting this up. And one of the most important things we did early on was we called some of the scholars who had been studying the decline of democracies around the world. Uh, Yasha Monk, uh, Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, Kim Shapley at Princeton, Tim Snyder at Yale. And we asked their advice. And to a person, they all said, it's worse than you think. Um, the U.S. is in grave danger right now, and it's important you do something about it. And they they also played a really important role in helping us understand what this movement towards authoritarianism looks like in the 21st century and how we could start thinking about um, standing in the, in the way of it. So you guys, we're going to fast forward because you just put out uh, a really, really, it's it's a great document because it's readable. Um, it's it's not written as like a white paper. It's written as something that like anybody can read uh, called the authoritarian playbook. And what you're doing is looking ahead to what happens if we go to Trump 2.0. And uh, I, I very much appreciate the subtweet of Ross Douthat in the first paragraph. Amanda, thank you. I, uh, I assume was, you did that for was, me. There was a lot of support for putting that in there. Good, good. That <laughs> guy's the worst. Both, um, both of us. This is a this is a common theme we've liked to hit on. And so I've always appreciated the catharsis that I get when you point out that sometimes if people are consistently wrong, uh, maybe there's not a good reason to keep giving them a platform to misinforming people. But you would think he's a boss pleaser, though. We all know what that's like. Uh, so here I'm just going to tick off and, because we I don't want to trespass on your time here. Ian. Um, I'm going to tick off the for people the, the six areas of concern that you guys bring up and then. I'm just going to put a quarter in the machine and let you go on the things that are either one of the, the things that you think are the most dangerous. Uh, number one, he pardons everyone. And so everybody around him realizes that they can just break the law on his behalf because they're unprosecutable. This seems like the most obvious. Yes, of course, this is going to happen. Uh, weaponizing Department of Justice. Well, he said that he is going to do that and that he should do that. Um, Regulatory retaliation against, say, media organizations by the FCC. Again, he said this already that he wants to do it. Um, the election law tinkering, which I'd like to have you tell me some more on. Deploying the military via Insurrection Act. Again, we know that he's attempted to do this already and wants to do it. And finally, they won't leave at the end of the term, which is the thing that I fixate on too, because I I feel as though one of the rationalizations we're three months away from getting is from Republicans. Hey, it's okay 
because he's a lame duck as soon as he takes office. Don't worry, right? Like, he can't do any more damage once he, you know, it's his second term. Once he's elected, it's all over. We can go on to finding the post-Trump future. Um, so, I don't know. Again, I'm just putting a quarter in. You tell me. what. Uh, which of these keeps you awake most? Well, you know, John, I think I would almost turn it around and say, you know, would you rather die by firing squad, by hanging, or by lethal injection? I mean, I have very strong feelings on that. Okay. So. <laughs> I imagine you might. And you'll probably write me a really eloquent newsletter tomorrow explaining why you prefer lethal injection to the other two. And you'll probably persuade me that it is the preferable of the three. Uh, personally, I'd like to avoid all of them. And I think that, that, would be, uh, that would be why I'm concerned about all of these. And, uh, you know, on, on the document's readability, uh, the hat tip here to my colleague, Amanda Carpenter, who took the pen and really led this process, I, you know, I, I'm wearing my, my Knicks uh, sweatshirt today, my Knicks are 14 and two this month. And I will just point out that um, the Knicks traded for OG Ananobi about 16 games ago, and they've been on a tear ever since. And it was right about the time that we, Protect Democracy, traded with the Bulwark to get Amanda Carpenter. And we've been on a tear ever since. So OG and yeah, we, Amanda said we got a like player to two... named later. You know, yeah, I like yeah. the collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> no trading. We're um, just all going to work together. <laughs> but but I think the, the thing about this report that's, that we tried to do that I think is really important and, and is that, you know, as you know, the report just covers the stuff that Trump has said he intends to do. We're not yeah. speculating here about what he might do and sort of having some sort of fever dream about, oh, he could do this. It's like, no, he's sad. That, that was a limiting principle for the report. We're only going to cover the stuff he has said he intends to do because, you know what, in the past when he said, I'm going to ban Muslims from entering the country or, you know, I'm going to build this wall, people would say, oh, don't, don't, you know, you can't take them literally. Like, he doesn't really mean that. But no, he actually does. He actually means to try to do those things. So we've learned. No, Ross, Ross do that doesn't doesn't learn these lessons. But we've learned that when he says, hey, this is what I'm going to try to do, that generally speaking, that's what he's going to try to do. And so that's the first thing. But after he says, I'm going to do these things, then to your point, there's a couple of deflections that tend to happen among Republican electeds or other Trump followers. I thought it was stunning today that in the donor meeting down in Mar-a-Lago, Mar Susie <laughs> Wiles, the Trump campaign director that's told the, the mega donors, actually just ignore what the candidate says. Ignore what the candidate says. What what kind of campaign is it where you're telling your supporters, hey, we want you to back the guy. Just just don't pay attention to what he says. Well, we're paying attention to what he says. And so among the other deflections that you hear are, but he couldn't really get away with doing these things, right? We have a system of checks and balances. We have a system of separation of powers. There are guardrails that stand in the way. So the question we sought to answer is, you know, we have a lot of people who've served at the high levels of the executive branch and all three branches of the government. We have a lot of experience with how you actually try to do things like send a coin into space or make a doggy baseball card. And so <laughs> we tried to look at, okay, if he was going to try to do these things, how would you actually execute that if you were sitting atop the current executive branch of the United States? What are the checks that would stand in the way? And how have his allies at things like the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025 laid out their plan for how they will try to get around those checks? And what's likely to prevail? Are they going to be able to get around them? Or are the checks going to work? That was what we tried to answer because that's kind of a live debate right now. He says he's going to do these things. Can he get away with it? Can he actually do it? 
And the conclusion of the you know very impressive group who put this this report together. It's not just Amanda. It's people who worked for the Office of Legal Counsel in the Trump administration. People who clerked for then Judge Merrick Garland. People who worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, these are people who have experience with this. Their conclusion was, we think actually he'll be able to override the checks and get away with it. And there's just not enough appreciation of that in the discussion right now. Um, and I'll end on the last thing, Jonathan, you, you pointed to, which is this, you know, but it'll be a lame duck, right? He's term, term limited out. Well, yeah. why, why, do, why, why, do, why should we think that? Well, because there's this thing called the 22nd Amendment, which says that you can only serve two terms. He served one before. If he were to return to office, that would be two, right? But let me ask you this. And, and yes, it's a little bit rhetorical, but you could speak to it. We get to the end of, of a second Trump term. It's approaching 2028. And he says, I'm going to run again. He says, I was deprived of my full first term because Russia yeah. hoax, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to run again. And the entire Republican establishment falls in line behind them because, of course, they do, because that's what they always do. And let's just say a public poll says, you know, 51 percent of the people agree. So then the question would be, does the Supreme Court enforce the Constitution and say you're ineligible to run? Hmm, interesting question. One that's before the Supreme Court next week. If the Supreme Court right doesn't now, enforce right? that he's we ineligible right now. Amendment. Yeah, you know, 22 right. is a stronger amendment than 14, right? What well, do words I, mean? I think if the Supreme Court's not willing to enforce the 14th Amendment, I don't know how much confidence we should have that they're going to enforce the 22nd. I'll get you one worse. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, please. Bring <laughs> on go. the dark. The Midnight darkness. Did choose to enforce the 22nd Amendment. They don't have their own army. At that point, you really are like, well, I don't know. Let's take the temperature of the senior officer ranks uh what's and you know there's been a lot of reporting going on about like the trumpification of the military in the u.s and the constitutional sheriffs and like i don't know um are we are we a hundred percent confident that a supreme court ruling on the 22nd amendment would absolutely be uh followed without pushing to i mean this is the guardrails didn't hold in 2020 what held were the capitol police Right. It was guys with guns hold. That's what held the system. Right. Together. And, uh, you know, are, are are we sure that. Uh, well, you know what? That's not what Joe Lieberman says. Anyway? Joe Lieberman well, says they just took a quick recess. No, I'm not talking about the labels. I'm talking about Joe Lieberman's assessment of what took place on January 6th. It's just there was an incident. Congress went to recess. They came back and everything was fine. I've always former, really liked Joe Senator. Lieberman. Very, very hard. Uh, all right. So real quick, Ian, because you got to get out of here. Always say, Although this is very enjoyable. What did we do? I, I, this is, I, I was looking forward to talking with you, and it is everything that I expected it to be. So give me the I mean, he didn't, he didn't do, do any impressions. So he's on his best behavior. Yeah, I haven't done Cletus. I'm on very good behavior here. <laughs> uh, so so to, what what is to be done? Right. Uh, when we talk about holding together this coalition, um, which I don't know, you I'm sure you read the big Jonathan Shade article a few weeks ago. It kind of feels like that coalition is splintering um, partially around the never Trump right, but also partially around like the very progressive edges of the left. Uh, what what is to be done? Well, well first off, um, let's remember that although we marinate in the darkness and we do, we're actually doing pretty well. As a country, and and we don't hear yeah. that enough because there's a lot That's of why I'm so dark, Ian. And, because yeah, everything's know, going great, and people still want to reelect this motherfucker. 
Well, let, 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 let me let me let me let me paint why I actually think we're actually doing pretty damn well, and, and it's this: when autocrats seize the highest office in the land, when they become the chief executive, the commander in chief, historically, internationally, typically, they don't leave. They don't leave for a generation. They're there. Putin, 20 years, Erdogan, 25 years, Orban, 20 years. They don't leave. And our guy left at the end of his first term. Now, I know there were some hiccups along the way, but he left at the end of his first term. And that is anomalous. It is remarkable. And it does suggest two things. One, that yes, you know what? American democratic institutions are pretty strong, pretty resilient. They're not, they're not totally impermeable, but they're pretty resilient. And the American people have an enormous amount of agency to become active citizens, because that didn't just happen automatically. He didn't just end up out at the end of one term because the institutions protected themselves. Institutions don't protect themselves. Institutions are like buildings and words on paper. People protect them. People animate them. And we did that. We did that once. And that is that is remarkable. And we have to do it again, but it suggests that we can. It suggests that we can. And look, the, 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 the way I think about sort of, well, they held, and so why aren't you sort of, you know, so confident they'll hold again? Well, look, if you're sitting in a little, you know, kind of uh, small wooden house in the middle of the Kansas plain and the, and, the, and the tornadoes, you know, hitting the barriers and sides, and somehow the little house holds on, you know what you do? You don't say, hey, it survived. I guess what we find? No, you go and you duct tape the windows and you get the sandbags and you yeah, put some no nails in and you, you protect yourself for the next one. So we got to strengthen everything for the next one because uh, the, the storm is coming, but we can do it. I mean, if you just look at you know, Amanda and our colleagues that protect democracy as just a microcosm of some of the active citizen stuff going on out there. I mean, we're winning cases in court repeatedly, just won a $148 million verdict against Rudy Giuliani for defaming Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. We got a emergency injunction during the 2022 midterms from a Trump judge in Arizona against armed vigilantes patrolling drop boxes. We just defeated an attempt uh, to have our case dismissed going after the book bans uh, in North Florida in public schools before a Trump appointed judge who ultimately agreed that, you know what, the, the First Amendment actually has some Thing to say about removing books because you don't like the viewpoint expressed in them. We're getting legislation passed. You know, we got a bipartisan reform to the Electoral Account Act passed in 2022, which is plugging some of the gaps uh, that were exposed on January 6, 2021. Um, we are organizing, uh, probably some people watching here have seen over the last couple of years, 2,000 alumni of the Department of Justice say, you know, you can't interfere in the sentencing of one of the, the AG shouldn't interfere in the sentencing of one of the president's friends. Those things are checking people in the building. We hear from people in the Department of Justice when things like that happen. They feel empowered to stand up against improper political pressure to do the wrong thing. We, that's all citizen work. That's things that we all can do. And so I think that we've got a model that works for bringing people together. But here, here's like a last note on what people can do um, that isn't uh, highfalutin about lawsuits and legislation, because that's, you know, not everyone can go out and file a suit. Not everyone can go convince a senator to, to pass a bill. But here's, and this is going to sound pretty airy here, but this is something that I think I really deeply believe, which is that at root, this is, the, this, is, this is de Tocqueville's idea, right? So I'm stealing from that root. Democracy isn't really a constitution and a set of laws. It's a way that people behave. It's a way that people say, hey, you know what? I might not totally agree with my neighbor. We might have a lot of differences, but they're my neighbor and we're in this together. And I should seek to build bridges to them and understand them because ultimately we're all in the same boat and we got to row to the other shore together. And I actually think that 
one of the things that Trump is playing on and 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 taking advantage of is the fact that that muscle, that kind of you know the habits of the heart that the Tocqueville wrote about, that's eroded in in modern times. And we need that back ultimately if we're going to survive because all the laws and all the constitutions of the world aren't going to save us if we don't behave as citizens in a democracy to our neighbors, including the ones with whom we disagree. And so I think one thing we all can do is anyone listening to this, we can be models of that out in the world. And I think that's one of the most powerful things we can do as citizens right now. Ian, well said. Thank you for being here, my friend. (laughs) Uh, Have a good rest of your night. Email you later on tonight about this. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, we have to get together in real life. I would get together so in real life with you. This. I would love to do IRL, as they say in generations below ours. IRL. You got that. <laughs> All right, everybody else, hang out. Uh, Thank Ian, you, Ian. Here, big guy. Bye, guys. Bye, Amanda. Bye, Jonathan. Bye. Amanda Carpenter, hey. my friend. I have so much to talk to you about. Um, everybody. I hope Ian wasn't looking at the chat because in the chat people are like, let Amanda talk. We want to hear oh, Amanda. No, What's like, Amanda gotta, doing? It just got to go. Like, he needs a couple quarters. Like, in we the only machine. had 30 minutes. Like, yeah, yeah. Decided, no, that's great. I no, I saw there were so many like on targets and hearts popping up. I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> he can go. Uh, so there's so much to talk about in the world. I am dying to hear what you think about Nikki Haley. I, you know what? I thought that was going to be the first thing you were going to go. Well, I'm kind of curious about you because I've always been the same. I, I'm, you know, probably like Sarah, always sympathetic, always sort of rooting for her in her camp. At the same time, realizing she's walking an insane kind of dumb tightrope act. And I know she's playing dumb when she's doing the things like, oh, I haven't followed the court cases, blah, blah, blah. Um. But, you know, like, I am so gratified and happy she's the one, she's the last man standing in the primary right now because even though she does say some stupid things and is, you know, kind of opaque deliberately um, because I think most of what she says is very calculated and based on polling and seeing how far she can go, it's very important that it's her, not DeSantis, going to South Carolina. It's extremely important that it was all the Viveks and the DeSantis's and even the Chris Christie that dropped out. I mean, they gave up. They surrendered. She's the only one taking this fight. And she's not going as far as, of course, the never Trumpers would want her to go. But she's essentially saying he's unfit. She's saying things that I don't think you can take back. And I, you know, in the back of my mind. I do think it is also calculated because she's looking at 2028 and not necessarily 2024. That's delusional. And here's, here's, here's my case. If you can't win, the next best thing in politics is being able to say, I told you so. And that is what she is setting herself to be able to do when Republicans get destroyed again. Is it? I, so this I, is a real I think question that's the play. You. Because I don't think that saying, let, let's just pretend, let's pretend everything works out fine. Oh, actually. Joe Biden wins. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, no, I got to not, I got to not lose this thought because it's what I think she might do, but also what I think she should do. So that's probably like all my biases. So it's maybe completely wrong, but I'm going to put this out there. When she has to drop out and she is begged, harassed, 
by everyone to endorse Trump. She can pull off the Southern lady thing and say, you know what? I'm going to respect his wishes that I stay barred from MAGA. I'm going to respect his wishes that I stand the sidelines. He clearly doesn't want my help. And so I won't give it to him. That would be great. Take well, it, Nikki. Take it. If, if Nikki Haley does that, uh, it would be amazing. I, I wouldn't even need her to like endorse Biden. That would I mean, be and then and then bless your heart, even though I hate that saying and I hate all that fake Southern stuff. But you know what? If she says it after she says, I'll respect his wishes, I would. That would be delicious. <laughs> that would be that'd be great. And I could I could live with that. Um, the 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 two things I want to talk about are first about Nikki 2028 and then about the endorsement, non-endorsement. So on the Nikki 2028, I think let's pretend Trump loses. Let's pretend it's 2028. If he's still alive, he's going to be the front runner for that nomination. And I, I do not think that you can beat him by saying, I told you so. I think the only chance of beating him again, you have to be like Tucker or, you know, like more MAGA than my right or JD. Nikki Haley is not inheriting this party. There is no, there is no throne for her. Wait, there is no just scenario. Because it doesn't she... work. Doesn't mean she won't do it or she no, doesn't think fair. that's her best option. Fair. So here's a question to you. So Bill and Tim were debating this last night on mm -hmm. ballot box and Bill suggested that if Nikki does endorse him anyway, it ultimately doesn't matter much. And so, so like the Tim JVL position is, if she endorses him after saying all this stuff, it actually is hurtful because it means that she's telling the voters, you can think all these things just the way I do, but we have to vote for him anyway. Yeah. Did you and see the Susan Collins the other week? She says, I'm not going to endorse him. But do you remember where we had this whole news cycle was it Ron Johnson where he said, I won't endorse him, but I'll support him? Do you remember when that was the oh, play? Oh, I've forgotten that. Oh, yeah. I was like, Susan Collins, of course. It. If Nikki Haley does that, like, okay, like Sarah, she's dead to me because it effectively means the same thing. And just as a practical matter, let's pretend she spends a month being very hard on him. And then at the end of the day, when she leaves, she says, I said I would support our nominee and I'm supporting our nominee. Does that... Like, does the fact of her spending a month beating up on him, will that have hurt his chances? Uh, will will her endorsing him in the end actually wipe all that away? Or does it really just not matter if the election is going to be about 5,000 other big forces that are all... all I think it does matter because she's already provided the tape for Biden to use in a general election. You know, it's like, yeah. I have this vision in my head, you know, the last election, 2020, there were Republicans for Biden. This next election, it should be Republicans who worked for Trump for Biden. <laughs> yes. Right? Because you can just play the yeah. tape. I mean, I don't care if Bill Barr says I'm going to support the nominee. He's on tape saying he's essentially, you know, disqualified and asking you to do the Insurrection Act and will, will he blah, blah, blah. You have the tape of these people yeah. saying he's essentially disqualified. And so, you know, I agree all these people should be speaking out, but roll the tape, baby. It's it's all there. These are people that worked for him, UN ambassador, AG, chief of staff, secretary of defense. I mean, da 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 da. Use it. Yeah. Maybe people will pay attention to it. I don't know. I We got a good poll today. We got a bad poll yesterday. Yesterday was morning consult battleground polls showing Trump up 
anywhere between plus three and plus 10, I think, across like the eight battleground states that they pulled. Mm -hmm. Today, we got a Monmouth poll showing Biden up six nationally. Um, shouldn't, I mean, with the economy the way it is, as Ian said, like things are good. Uh, the economy is good. Biden's the incumbent president. Trump, again, has all these people who work in high levels who running around saying, not that like, they don't like him, he's a bad dude, but like he's a crazy person who's unfit for the office of the presidency. This shouldn't be close, right? Why? I mean, it's always going to be... Tell I me mean, what you think when you look at these I think poll these Is polling real? I mean, polling seems pretty broken. It's got 2016 wrong. It's sort of got 2020, like, up and down. It got the midterms wrong. I, I just, I don't... I don't, I don't want to say I don't care about polling, but I don't follow polling. I mean, I really okay. like it doesn't matter to me that much um, until you get down into the home stretch. Um, but what I do see happening, you know, I think Biden recognizes he has vulnerabilities in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan. That's why he's in Michigan this week. Um, he's taking care of the stuff early that he needs to take care of. You notice he did, you know, it. I think most bulwark listeners know my feeling about abortion, how all that played out. He's doing that early to take a stand. That was like his first big campaign speech. Now he's going to the unions. He's running like very traditional campaign stuff, taking care of the basics. Um, and so we get all strung out about, oh, what's Trump going to do? And this is all unprecedented. I, does Does Trump know how to run against Biden? I don't think he does. And th this is an area where Biden really doesn't get enough credit. Because he does take care of the basics in his own kind of quiet, no drama way. And so, you know, Trump keeps flinging stuff on the wall against him. There's no proof that any of it has worked. I mean, all yeah. this Hunter Biden drama, how much? I mean, this would be interesting to quantify. How many hours have Republicans in Congress spent trying to promote this narrative that what does it produce? And I don't mean in terms of like investigation, in terms of like, like polling, like where is the net effect other than a lot of Republicans talk crap about Hunter Biden? Electorally, it hasn't materialized to anything. And so, you know, there's a lot of asymmetric campaign warfare that Trump engages in that I think, you know, worked in 2016 and really gets people flummoxed for a lot of reasons. But it isn't that effective. It hasn't, it hasn't, hasn't been effective. And so I am somewhat comforted by that even though i'm always vigilant etc <laughs> tell me what you think about the immigration thing uh are republicans crazy so in the senate mm -hmm. like we've got this weird thing where it's not clear if republicans are really going to try to kill it or not i mean it seems to me to be something it should be a big vulnerability for them I don't know. For like, the Republicans? What, well, yeah. there's a lot of things I'm worried about with this. And Tell me all with, of them. With the, the, the thing I'm most worried about right now is what Abbott is doing in Texas, where you have the Ugh. potential for a standoff between federal you know, law enforcement in the form of Border Patrol and the National Guard coming in that red state governors has sent in to do things. I mean- if you want to make, how do you make a humanitarian crisis worse? Turn it into a constitutional crisis. See what happens. And you know, I've been paying attention to this for a while, as you know, through my writing at the Bulwark, and I think this even comes out in the report that we did um, with um, PD, 
in the fact that there is a lot of innovative and terrifying thinking going on in conservative circles about how to get National Guard troops and how to deploy them in new ways. Uh, we saw this with Lafayette Square, which you know I didn't understand probably until the last six months that I was under the impression that Trump essentially, you know, he kind of went around invoking the Insurrection Act and got the troops by just getting his red state governor buddies to send National Guard troops, which is sort of what happened. But they did use a loophole to do that um, is under a, like a hybrid training exercise. That was not a training exercise. You know, we all saw what happened. And that was a mix of law enforcement, National Guard, people not wearing badges, army helicopters buzzing people. Nobody knew who was who. There was no accountability because nobody could figure no. out what happened. Like there was that whole like hubbub about, well, who who deployed the tear gas? There was no tear gas deployed because we can't figure out who did it. Meanwhile, like you can see on film, there's tear gas being deployed. Um, no accountability for any of that. Nobody lost their job. Nobody got sued. Nothing happened. And that was not even invoking the Insurrection Act, which Trump has said he would do for immigration purposes, which, you know, I think probably a pretext for other purposes too, because once presidents have forces like that, they don't really say, okay, I'm done now. You can have them back. That's just not a thing. So what I see going on with this immigration thing at the border and Abbott getting, you know, potential for guard troops to get sent in, red state governor saying like, yeah, I'll send them. I find it extremely, extremely concerning. Good God. Um, where are you on the 14th Amendment stuff? It's something I've been wanting to talk to you about. (laughs) You know, I haven't, I think it's, it's absolutely a question that needs to be tested. States' rights, right? You have the right. But the problem is, is that no one has gotten to the question of whether Trump engaged in an insurrection or not. Like, it's not a legal finding. So you have all these people in various states saying, yes, he engaged in an insurrection. Republicans saying this in many cases, Republican judges, et cetera. But we're not the right venue for it. Somehow we have to get some kind of consensus of whether he insurrected or not. <laughs> that's not the right tense of the word. Um, so that's kind of where I get stuck. And I read you had a great newsletter today, uh, which I did not know the history around it at all. What was the guy's name? Floyd? Floyd. Floyd, yeah. Uh, I mean, where I get where I get stuck on this is that maybe I'm crazy. But in the same way that I think the chances of Nikki Haley not endorsing Trump are like this big, the chances of the Supreme Court not tossing this and finding in Trump's favor are this big. And when you have, you know, so the Constitution is loaded up with ways to stop uh, autocratic aspiring presidents, one of which is impeachment. So impeachment is now a dead letter, right? We have now we have now seen that the constitutional mechanism for impeachment was a one of those things where you know break glass if there's an emergency but then you break the glass you pull it it's not connected to anything mm-hmm. so impeachment is a dead letter you cannot hold hold presidents to account by impeachment well well wh- what do you mean by that because you don't think if republicans had you know the votes in the senate they wouldn't have impeached biden it's it's still there you can't convict them oh, no but mean- i'm saying practically speaking you cannot eject the president from the presidency via impeachment like in the same way that, you know, in theory, you can amend the Constitution. The reality is 
you could amend the Constitution 100 years ago. You can't really do it anymore because just scale, right? The, the America's too big. The system is too sclerotic. It's just not practicable. Uh, and so with the 14th Amendment, if you take, so if that becomes a dead letter too, this is again, one of those guardrails. And when, when the guardrails haven't been tested, Well, it's not like he's going to say this deterrence. doesn't apply. It's just always going to be, this isn't the right venue on a technicality because X, Y, Z, hey, Congress, if you really wanted us to do it, you would pass a law. Here's, take the hot potato, hot potato. That's what this I feels guess. like. I don't know. I, uh, man, I, it just makes me nervous. Uh, and I, I have been conflicted by this from the start because uh, on the one hand, I feel like we're going to lose this case. And so better not to bring it. And we're going to have to win at the ballot box anyway. So let's just do it. But on the other hand, like it exists. I disagree. Even if we do lose it. I think the fact that it is another way for Republicans in legal circles to be on record saying Donald Trump did, in my legal opinion, engage in an insurrection. I think that is important. Yeah, okay. I can take that. All right. Last thing. Taylor Swift. Oh, geez. So here is here is my I mean, I have, I have two questions about this. The first one is a I have, actually uh, I have a question. Okay. What do your kids think about this? About on the subject of Taylor Swift writ large? No, Taylor. Do they have any knowledge of Taylor Swift and Trump? No. OK. No. Do they have any do they connect her to politics whatsoever? Oh, they're interested in politics, but I war- I, I just try to discourage that. I I tell them, no, don't be interested in politics. I do this all day. I don't want to talk about it with you at night. Yeah. Okay. They, they're not aware that like people are getting weird about Taylor Swift and I don't, Kelsey. I don't Kelsey. think so. Okay. Kelsey. Kelsey. Yeah, I know it's Kelsey. Um, it just looks like Kelsey. My husband gets mad. Right. He's an amazing football right player. Okay. So here is here is my question to you. I look at the, the MAGA Taylor Swift hatred and there are people out there who tell me that this is just because they're afraid of her political power. I think it's misogyny. Yeah, I would listen to you. Uh, am I am I talking. wrong about that? Now, again, this is like the most obvious thing. And I'm sure all of my like liberal Democratic uh, female friends would be like, oh, you discovered misogyny. Great job, Sherlock. Uh, but that's I, basically how I feel on this. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You, you it tell is, me. But- there's a a large hint of betrayal. So it, it is misogyny. But the way I see it, like when I was looking at a lot of the um uh oh, since I gotta put on my battery saver. I don't I have a my oh, wait, oh no. Hold on. no, hold on, let me plug in my computer real quick. <laughs> Before I don't die in you. I didn't realize it wasn't plugged in. That's okay. Plugged. All right. We're good. Um so, so when I was writing my book, Gaslighting America, Why We Love and Trade Lies, I had a lot more research on the white nationalists and uh, the Daily Stormer people. And they were very infatuated with Taylor Swift. Young. Really? White. Country, is this when she was underage? Traditional. Coming up. No, you know, in her, in her, like I, 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 I 
I'm not sure. I mean, this was like in 2016. So however old she was at that time, but when she was a traditional country singing, you know, leaning right, not really involved in politics in as she progressed in her career and change, got control of her own record stuff um, and became a little bit more like she dipped her toes in the water of like feminist stuff. And she's not political, but clearly a woman making it on her own terms and exploring different themes. And there was a lot of commentary, not just there, but then also I picked up on women's sort of like traditional circles about, well, she's this, you know, she's a traditional girl, but like she's dating a lot. She's not getting married, like a little bit of side eye on that type of thing. And so there's also a deep hunger you know, and I know this from like my days around Fox News and how they would fixate on like liberal women like Jane Fonda, which I didn't understand at the time. Like there's a bunch of like people they like to single out, you know, then Tucker Carlson, like the cat lady thing. There's just like a lot of stuff going on there. And so then when it comes out that she voted, you know, she supported Biden, she's dating the the vaccine guy. I think it was some latent angst. And the sort of like, she's going to betray us and use her power against us. But then also Donald Trump and those people, they like to beef and clout chase. Right. Oh, yeah. I didn't she's really the biggest story in America. She's at the Super Bowl. Let's start a holy war with her um, and stay in the headlines. And so I think it just checks a lot of weird boxes and she's earned absolutely none of it. And it's disgusting. But she's... You know, she handles all the haters very well throughout her whole career. I think she'll be fine. But I do think it's beef and clout chasing on top of, you know, this underlying iceberg of other gross stuff. Yeah. That's I mean, my theory. The, the incels, when the incels talk about her, it's it's like they're reading their diary aloud to the it's world. Like, I'm I like, need, like hands- guys, you shouldn't say that out loud. Like, we <laughs> we get what's going on here, right? It's yeah. uh, It's really something. Um, in your house, what is the position of Taylor Swift? Are you because your kids are prime demo? Yeah, my my daughter's aware of the music. Like she's um playing volleyball now. She just had her twelfth birthday yesterday. Yes, um, tweenhood. Yeah, so like she goes with her volleyball friends and they just play the toilet Taylor Swift album. And it's like, what's your favorite Taylor song? That's about the extent of it. But then I kind of told her like, um. You know, she's aware she has a boyfriend in the Super Bowl and some people are mad about it. And, um, you know, we just say, why you gotta be so mean? <laughs> just shake it off. Yep. Yeah. Shake There's a song for off. everybody. Or my favorite yeah. song is you're being too loud. You need to calm down, which is about all the haters. So it we just kind of have fun with it. Do you, I mean, I can't imagine this makes any actual electoral difference. Right. This I, is just a story. We we have to have stories and the Republican primary is over. And so that like we're in the two week lull for the Super Bowl. So everybody's talking about it. Yeah. But she yeah. does have power. And people know this because Marshall Blackburn got in trouble. Um, You know, the senator from Tennessee. I forget at one point Donald or Taylor called her Donald Trump in a in a dress. Um, You know, it was like one of the few yeah, times. Wait, and did now, you see her on Fox today? No. What happened? Oh, Marsha Blackburn is on Fox today. Got asked about Taylor Swift by the Fox host, hoping she was going to go like ham on her. And Marsha Blackburn was like, oh, she is such an inspirational young woman. So talented. And we are so proud of her in Tennessee. 
Jordan Ash. I mean, it was the it was the most hammer. Don't hurt me. I've ever seen. Well, okay. It well, then, case wild. in point, that is that is the demonstration of, you know. Oh, and then what did she got like some million people registered to vote? So yeah, it does move the needle among a demographic they're suffering with, and that you know all this stuff has been said. Um, but but the point about, you know, the MAGA incel crowd that thinks they owned her is the most disgusting element of it to me. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I'm a big Taylor fan for the business reasons, because like she is, you know, for generations, artists have gotten ripped off yep. in, in every industry, but especially in the music industry. And she like beat the house. And uh, there's nothing as inspirational for creators and creative people than an artist who beats the house and who, while doing it, makes life like this much better for all the artists coming in behind them. Yeah. So that's kind of. That's kind of why I've always liked Tay Tay. Uh, all right, Amanda, so much for coming on this. Yeah, show. I'm glad. I'm Absolutely super glad delightful. we got everything together. And uh, before I go, just is Charlie, if you're out there listening, great job with everything. We're all we sad all to done. see you go, but and also happy. everybody in the comments, it's gonna be okay. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you all about what's going on. But don't. It's gonna be great. Charlie's great. Be great. Just uh we'll be living in an autocracy, that's all. <laughs> Amanda, take care. Give my love to the family. All right, same. Bye. Thanks. See you next week. All right.